Father, in your kindness and in your mercy, would you meet with us this morning as you already have. Thank you for the good word that we heard today from Canon Gibbs, and we are impressed and challenged and encouraged to be in a place of wonder and awe because of what you have done for us in Christ. And I ask that this morning our time together would contribute to that in some small way. And and if any of that happens, Lord, we know that it will be your kindness and we'll be quick to give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm glad you're here. I guess you're the elect. <laughs> I, mean, this is, this is, um, I kind of like it a smaller crowd, actually, because then we'll ha- we can maybe have a little bit more give and take. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm keen on that. So I'm, I'm going to try to... Um, my, my father listens to these things. He's my sort of critical voice uh, that listens to these things on the Internet. And um, I try to forget that they're out there because I, I can't, it's hard, any, anyhow. But he was commending me, he says, Mark, you're giving some time for questions, that's good. And, and uh, just last night, so I'll make sure to try to do that today. Um, I, a little preview, this isn't completely related, but a couple of introductory matters I wanted to talk about. I, I just finished a biography, and part of it was in preparation for, our, for this theological lecture series that we're doing in April, but I just finished a biography last night on John Calvin um, by Bruce Gordon. I, I commend this to you all. If any of you are interested in sort of theological biography, Bruce Gordon teaches up at Yale now. He was at St. Andrews uh, when I was uh, taking my terminal degree in the Center for Reformation Studies there. Um, a fine Calvin scholar. Um, but this book just pops off the page. It's, it's published by Yale University Press. It's out, it's out in paperback as well. I really commend it to you if you're interested, especially not just in John Calvin, but if you're interested in um, Reformation Europe, the complexity of the Reformation. I don't know if you're like me. I'm a Bible guy at the end of the day. Um, but I, I, I tended to look at the Reformation through a very sort of small window. You, know, you had the big guys, Luther, you had Calvin, you had Bootser who was in, in Strasbourg, you had Bullinger and, and uh, Zwingli who were in, in, in Zurich, and then Cranmer up there in, uh, in Canterbury. And I just sort of had these things sort of pieced in very tight quarters. It's a complex amalgamation of political and social forces at work. And Gordon is really good at showing that. What I also like about Gordon is um, he reveals the humanity of, of someone like Calvin. Now, I like Calvin, all right? And I, I've told you this before. I've joked about this. Uh, you know, I, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 12, and then I asked Calvin in my heart when I was 18. I say that ad nauseum, I know. Um, I like Calvin a great deal. And what I appreciate about this book is... Um, I don't know. I mean, Calvin's not chummy. I don't know how else to put it. Um, the brother had serious uh, trouble with his stomach, his bowels. He had serious trouble with gout. Um, he died at a very young age, even by the standards of the day. Um, he worked himself to death, really. Um, he surrounded himself by a group of loyal friends, and loyalty was demanded of his friends um, so that those who challenged Calvin... Uh, it typically didn't go well for them relationally. Some of the, his closest friends by the end of his life weren't as close to him anymore. It, 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 he's, he's a complex guy. And I'm, what I'm reminded of with that, and by the way, similar with Luther and these others, what I'm reminded is, you know, I, I hope you, you realize this. I hope this comes as an, as an encouragement to you that God uses men and women to advance his kingdom as salt and light in the world who are really 
feeble and broken figures. Um, I think one of the things that frustrated Calvin, because Cal, for Calvin, as, as much for Luther too, the Christian life was a life of mortification and vivification, putting to death, making alive, and this constant struggle of an ongoing life of repentance. It's a struggle. And I think one of the things that really frustrated Calvin was, I, I think he thought he'd be better when he was older. Um, and he wasn't. And, and in many ways, uh, Calvin became more irascible and more difficult to deal with the older that he got. And I think it really bothered him. In other words, he, he thought it would be better than that. Um, maybe you can empathize in a way, I don't know. Um, but there's something beautiful about the grace of Christ that uses broken and feeble women and men to advance to advance His kingdom. I, I, I just want to... I'll do more of this uh, with Calvin because I want to give you a little more biography on these figures when we engage them. But that's a little, little preview. Another thing too, just... I was spurred on to this. Again, this is from Bart, but from our sermon this morning. Um, I certainly appreciate, appreciated the tenor of our word that we heard today. Um, wonder at the gospel. Um, at the end of Bart's life, it was his swan song, Karl Bart, the last thing that he wrote um, before he died. He never finished the church dogmatics, his magnum opus. And the last thing that he wrote was a small uh, book of essays on, entitled Evangelical Theology. And basically it was Barth's detailed exposition of what it meant to be a theologian. And the first chapter, or one of the first chapters, is entitled Wonder. And Barth goes on with beautiful prose and, and thoughtful reflection. A 60-something-year-old man, no, no, I take that back, an 80-something-year-old man reflecting on on the character of what it means to be a Christian theologian. By the way, that's all of you. Okay, I mean, there, there are people who have sort of specific tasks to theology, but all of us in our Christian lives are involved in the task of theology. Basically, who is God and what does that mean for life? I mean, that's at, that's at the core of it. And what Bart said was, wonder is the primary, primary character trait of the theologian. Someone who's been seized by the subject matter left in a position of awe and an overwhelming sense of, of what this gospel is. I mean, it's a sort of being seized. And we have felt that, haven't we, with Paul, I think, in these past four weeks and ending today. Paul, like Bart was talking about as well in evangelical theology, had been seized by the wonder of the gospel. It had grabbed a hold of him in such a way that, as we heard this morning, he thought all things were fine. The ship was on the sea. The rudder was set in the right direction. Things are fine. And then all of a sudden, God apocalyptically unveils Himself to Paul on this road to Damascus. And life, as Paul knew it before, was completely over. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? And this is a fascinating thing. And so he's, he's, he's seized by this. He's grasped by this. And I don't think Paul, and by the way, Calvin or Luther or Bart and the whole host of the Christian interpretive tradition, I don't think they ever lost a sense of wonder. They, they probably lost a kind of detailed and passionate affection for themselves. I think that probably happens. But the wonder of the gospel, what God had done in time, in the person and work of Jesus, it had seized the apostle, and we feel that in the book of Galatians. I, I, I commend that sentiment to you to think about and to reflect on as we come together for worship in the routine of our worshiping life, that worship centers around the wonder of what God has done for us 
in the person and work of, of Jesus. Well, to our lesson, uh, Galatians. This is our last day together. Um, I was kind of hoping that I could do a waboom ending, uh, but it'll probably just be a sort of peter off into the sunset ending. Um, but I wanted to read this verse to you in Galatians chapter 4. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. What Paul has done in Galatians chapter 4, he's entered into an allegory. He tells us so. Now I'm going to speak to you allegorically. There was Sarah and there was Hagar. One was over the, 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 the mother of Ishmael. One was the, the, the mother of Isaac. And then he begins to read this story allegorically. In other words, he lifts this story out of Genesis to a higher plane of reading. And what he says is, in effect, Sarah and Isaac, Isaac is the child of promise. That's a favorite term of Paul in the book of Galatians. He is the child of promise. Whereas Hagar and Ishmael become the children of slavery. And now he makes this comparison. And here's something that would have caught any um, Jew off guard in the first century world. What does Paul say? Paul says that Jerusalem in its current state is in a sense of bondage. Right? They are children of slavery. Whereas those who are identified in Christ are those who are children of the free. We are free. Now that's a strange reading. As a matter of fact, this is the kind of reading that I think would catch most of us off guard. But what provides the kind of interpretive lens by which Paul is reading this story in Genesis? I believe the interpretive lens is this text here in Isaiah chapter 54. Rejoice, O barren woman, you who did not have a seed, did not, did not have children, now you have children, and many more are the children of the desolate than the one who had a husband. Now, obviously, the imagery there in Isaiah 54 is linked to the imagery of Sarah, the barren wife of Abraham, who was told that she would have a child by promise, and she laughed. Do you remember this? She laughed. And then the Lord shows up, Yahweh Himself, in the form of this angel, and He says, Why did you laugh? You remember what Sarah said? I didn't laugh. You remember what Yahweh said? Yes, you did. Right? I mean, this is sort of, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did laugh. And then, so what does the child get named? His name is Itzach, which in Hebrew means laughter. It's laughter. It's humorous. It's surprising that Sarah, this woman of old age, has a child according to the promise of God. She has an offspring. And we saw Paul say earlier, didn't we, in Galatians chapter 4, that when it was promised to Abraham to have offspring, it was singular, sperma, not spermata, singular offspring, which is then understood to be Christ. And now we are His offspring. This now, you're going to have to buckle in here for at least five minutes. This here is where Paul is appealing to Isaiah to help interpret Genesis. And by the way, that is the kind of reading that finds its force within the Old Testament itself. The law and the prophets. They form the fundamental grammar of the Old Testament. And both of them mutually interpret one another. 
I don't know if you noticed this in the daily, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in the daily office during Lent, we moved from Deuteronomy to Jeremiah. Did you notice that, for those of you who may be reading that? From Deuteronomy to Jeremiah. What's going on there? The law and the prophets. They both mutually interpret one another. And here is Paul doing that kind of, for lack of a better term, canonical reading on the Old Testament. Where the law and the prophets mutually inform one another in a relationship of reciprocity. So what is going on in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1? We're in Lent. So you should be prepared for this in a way as we move into Holy Week. Isaiah 54, 1 comes right after what chapter? Isaiah chapter 53. That fourth of the, of the servant songs. Isaiah chapter 52, verse, verse 13 says, Behold my servant, he is high and exalted. And, and I, I'm not supposed to be teaching Isaiah this morning, but you'll forgive me for one second, won't you? Um, High and exalted, room that nasah. This is actually an incredible predication that's being made there on the servant. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is in the throne room and he has this vision? And it says, Behold, I saw the Lord high and exalted, room that nasah. Isaiah chapter 2, we see Judah trying to room and nasah, trying to raise and exalt herself. And what happens when Judah or Israel tries to raise and exalt themselves? Yahweh comes in as the great tree feller and He cuts them down. No one is raised and exalted. Those particular terms are predicated only on Yahweh Himself. He is the one who is high and exalted. Whenever we try to exalt and raise ourselves, that act of hubris and arrogance in the face of God Himself, we get cut down. That's very Pauline, by the way. What does Paul say? If I'm going to boast, I'm going to tell you what my boasting is going to be like. I'm going to boast in the Lord. That's what, that's what Pauline boasting is about. So here we see in Isaiah chapter 52 that the servant is high and exalted. Language that's used only if Yahweh is now being predicated on this enigmatic figure who's beginning to sort of come out of Israel's existence to be Israel for Israel and the nations. And what does he do? This is the surprising move of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. There's praise songs galore written on this verse. Behold how beautiful, how lovely are the feet of those who are on the mountain announcing the good news, the gospel. What is the good news? Your God reigns. We love that. God reigns. That's the good news. But then when we move on from Isaiah 52 into Isaiah chapter 53, we begin to see the particular way in which God's reigning would be actualized. And no one anticipates this. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was, he was beat for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on Him. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then the key verse, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 and this is a verse that's challenging on multiple levels. I won't go into it. But Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the delight of the Lord to bruise Him. To crush Him. Why? So that when He made His life an offering, He made many righteous. That's you and me. He made many righteous because of, his, because of what He did, because of His bruising. And this is the last part of Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to listen closely to this. Verse 10. And after he has received the bruising, after he's come under the judgment of God, making many righteous, and the servant will see his 
offspring. The servant will see his seed. And now, for the rest of the book of Isaiah, we never see the term servant in the singular again after Isaiah 53. For the rest of the book, it's now servants, plural. The heritage of the servants who, have, who are the offspring of the servant. You see that? He is the servant, Jesus of Nazareth, who then sees his offspring, that righteous remnant that he has made righteous because of his own work, his own atoning work, and he will see his offspring. That's what Paul's typing into here in Isaiah 54, 1. Why is this barren woman able to rejoice? Because she couldn't have offspring. She couldn't have children. But the servant provided those children for her. That's the context of Isaiah 54. He saw his offspring. He made many righteous. And that's at the heart of what Paul's doing here in Isaiah in, in, in Galatians chapter 4. We are his offspring. We are the children of Abraham. Why? He's reading Genesis through the telescopic lens of Isaiah to show that it was the work of the servant on behalf of humanity that made possible the offspring that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So then he moves to Galatians chapter 5 and he says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's at the core of Paul's argument here. You are children of the free one. Your children who have been born as the offspring of the servant. Stand in the freedom. Don't go back to the yoke of tyranny, of the law. Stand in the freedom of Christ. Now I, Paul, this is verse 2, say to you that if you receive circumcision, again, this is that ex-Jesus plus something. If you think you need circumcision to go all the way in to covenant membership with God, beware, because Christ, Paul says, will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. Paul doesn't talk very positively about the law in Galatians at all. And here's another negative case. If you're going to receive circumcision, if you think that you have to do this kind of external act to be received into God's grace, then beware, you're going to have to do the whole thing from beginning to the end. And it's tyrannical. Then listen to this. You are severed from Christ. And notice, by the way, Paul's using double entendre language here. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, oh Paul, why do you say such things, would mutilate themselves. Ooh, that is, that's tough. I mean, it's like, oh man, it's like, um, it's, it's, it's like, you know, the early church fathers used to be like this a little bit. I, and, you know, we, I, I'm, 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 maybe I'm just too Southern. You know, I've got too much grits and gravy in, in my background as well. But, but I mean, you know, when, when they got into fights, when Athanasius got into exegetical fights with Arius, who did not believe Jesus was fully God, you know, they, they got into these ad hominem attacks. Where you know, Arius is kind of effeminate anyway, is what Athanasius said. I mean, these kind of, it's, it's, it's not always pretty, but here, here they are. Verse 13 
For you were called to freedom, brethren. Do you hear this? Paul is telling them, because of what Christ has done for you, you are free from the tyranny of slavery, from the tyranny of sin, which had hijacked the law. You're free from that. But now listen to how Paul defines freedom. We need some demythologizing of our own understanding of freedom here. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. You see what freedom is here? Freedom is not a kind of, for lack of a better term, libertarian freedom, where the world now centers around me and my needs. I don't listen to country music, um, not on purpose, but I, I don't, um, unless it's on. But I, I did hear uh, some, one of these songs, I can't remember how it goes, but something like, I don't want to talk about you anymore. Uh, let's talk about me, me, me. Was it? Oh, you're not going to admit that you know it. Um, <laughs> How does that go? Does it go like this? I'm like, yeah, 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 right. This, I want to talk about me, me, me. Right? I think that, that's not the kind of freedom Paul is talking about here. You have been set free from the tyranny of sin, from the tyranny of the law, which demands that you turn in on yourself in constant acts of introspection. Which, by the way, is I think what the church tradition would call sin. The turning in on the self. You have been freed from that constant turning in on the self, that constant seeing if you measure up to the demands of the law. You've been freed from that. Why? So that you can love your neighbor. So that you can love people. This is something, isn't it? When we are wrapped up in observance of the law, when we're wrapped up in checking off the list, what are we still wrapped up with? Ourselves. You've been freed from that, Paul is saying. But why have you been freed from that? To go to Vegas? I don't go to Vegas. I don't care about that. But I'm saying, is that the point he's saying here? No. The point is you've been freed so that you can love others. To be released from the self by the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit, is to be moved into lives of love that look outward toward others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Now look at this. This is going to surprise you. Verse 14. For the whole law. We just heard Paul use that phrase back in 5.3. I testify again to every man, this is 5.3, who receives circumcision, that he's bound to keep the whole law. Negative. Now listen to verse 14 of the same, cha- same chapter. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You hear that? I mean, Paul here now speaks positively of the law. Positively in the sense that when we love our neighbors as ourselves, which by the way, I think Jesus talked about that, right? But when we love our neighbors as ourselves, in doing so, we are fulfilling the intention of the law. We're filling it out to its fullness, right? Not for salvation, not for justification, not for our own self-righteousness, no, but in doing that, in being freed from ourselves, we're actually, here's the, the, the logic, by being freed from the tyranny of the law to walk in the Spirit, we actually then fulfill the law. Not by turning in on the cells, but by being freed toward being freed toward others. I remember this song we used to sing growing up in my Baptist world. Uh, I, don't know, I don't think this is in our hymnal. Free, free from the law, O blessed condition. Um, 
Now I have peace because there's remission. Do any of you know the song? We used to we used to change that and sing it something like free from the law or oh, happy condition. Now I can sin because I've got permission. Right? That's it. I don't that that, that that's not Paul's logic. Right? That's not Paul's logic. <laughs> Let me just read these verses to you. Verse sixteen. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, to go back to our first time together. When Paul is speaking about spirit and flesh language, I do think we need to think about that primarily in eschatological terms. The old age was the age that was dominated by the flesh and by sin. In some sense, the flesh is not something necessarily internal to us, but it's almost this cosmic force, this alien other that had grabbed hold of the law with, with its joint partner, sin, had grabbed hold of the law, that good and holy thing that comes from God Himself, and had turned that into the means of our own death. It's old age kind of language. Don't go back into the old age. Walk in the Spirit, in the light of Christ. Why? Because we're in the age of the resurrection of the dead now. Live in that age. Walk in the Spirit. For the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, under its tyranny. Now he's going to tell us. The works of the flesh are plain. These might be the parts that we wish weren't in there, but they made the cut. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension. Party spirits, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. Lord have mercy. Are you saying that? (laughs) I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And here's the cart of Paul's logic. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you remember that old Sean Penn movie, a Dead Man Walking? Powerful movie. Right. Um, that, that's, that's what Paul's saying. When we come to church on Sunday morning, when we live lives, our Christian existence, dead people walking. We're di- we've died. That old, that we've died and we've been made alive in Christ. And what Paul is telling us here in very stark terms is walk in that. You're free to be that in Christ. Not by turning to yourself, not by checking off a list, but by looking to Christ, away from yourself, to Christ, to see your identity completely and fully and safely in Him. Walking in that way. One last thing and then I'll be done. Brethren, you'll be surprised by this. I I am. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, look to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let there be no moans about it. I, I, this is one that I think I'll go to the guillotine now over. I really think this is true interpretively, though there's debates. Paul has spoken clearly throughout the whole book of Galatians about what the law is. What is the law? The law is the Mosaic Torah. And he speaks primarily negatively about the law. 
Why? It has, it has now been seized by sin. It's been the means of your death. You're no longer under the law. And now look what he says here at the end. There's been a few places here and there where Paul will speak positively about it. But now on the far side of the death and resurrection of Christ, bearing one another's burdens, loving our neighbors, when we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law in the gracious and life-giving hands of Christ. What is it that Christ did to the law? He removed its curse. It has no ability to curse those who are in Him anymore. He removed its curse. Galatians 3.13 By being a curse for us on the tree. He removed its curse. He fulfilled its commands by living an obedient life in the law, born into the law, Galatians 4, so that we might be receive the redemption, redemption of sons. He, he did that for us as well. And now because of all of that, the law can function as a gracious guide for those who live in the life of faith. Not as a, not as a means by which our justification is established, not as a means by which we measure ourselves against others, but in the light of the freedom that God has given us to walk in the light of His way and in the light of His will. It's a fascinating thing, actually, to see Paul do this left and right. 1 Corinthians 5-7. through Mess going on. I mean mess going on in the church at Corinth. And how does Paul adjudicate these problems? A man sleeping with his mother-in-law. You've got people going to court. You've got uh, food offered to idols. What to do with all this? You know what Paul does with it? He reads Deuteronomy and Leviticus to help the church at Corinth understand how to negotiate this difficult terrain. The law continues to play its role, but not not with any cursing ability in it. With not one ounce of soteric or salvific possibility in it. Not one ounce. That's completely fulfilled in Christ. And in gratitude and in graciousness, the Old Testament continues to instruct and guide us and lives live before Him. Paul's tough. I've I've told you this a few weeks ago and I'll say it again. We could probably do Galatians next year again and have another round at it. It's a rich book and I hope it's been of some benefit to you. Um, It certainly has been to me. All right, you want to fire some questions around? We're heading to, I'm getting on the road to Tampa here pretty soon. Pray for us nine hours with three boys. In view of Galatians, would you give the Christian community a cautionary notice to how we emphasize baptism and its methods and just the emphasis we give to baptism? Okay, parse that out a little bit more. Okay. <clears throat> All baptized believers are welcome to take communion at our altar. It sounds like we all know it's a sacrament and it's important, but it seems a little conditional. Um, so I'm just, and then we have, going back to your tradition before, you know, Baptists saying adult immersed, Presbyterians saying sprinkler poured infant, you know, the covenant. So I just, would you give a cautionary note to the community to say, be careful that. Because if a Presbyterian goes to join a Baptist church, they're probably going to need to be immersed as an adult. I mean, it sounds a little bit like not quite enough. Oh, I see. I see. From from your testimony uh, to qualify 
to be in our community. Yeah, yeah. Oof. <laughs> I've got family members who might be listening to this, so I have to try <laughs> negotiate this carefully. Um, there, there is one baptism. Ephesians is clear on that. There is one baptism. Um, we've had to deal with this in our own home recently with our middle son who had a confrontation with, with, in some context with an adult who said, you know, if you were baptized as a child, that, that didn't take. You know, you're going to have to do that again after. And this is my, I, mean, I can remember in the world I grew up in, a man looked at me and said, well, if you weren't saved when you got baptized, you know, you, you got wet, brother, but you didn't get baptized. Well, this is, this is a huge issue related to the theology of baptism, how we understand salvation, the role of time when it comes to baptism. In other words, the temporal, because it's God moving toward us, right, and claiming us as His own, so that the temporality of it, I think, begins to become relative in relationship to God's grace. So, in that sense, yes, I, I you know, I've got colleagues who are Baptist. Um, I do know that there's a movement within certain quarters of, of Southern Baptists um, to not require people to be rebaptized who are baptized as children. Um, this was a real big debate. I don't know if any of you know John Piper. Um, he's a, a preacher up in, in um, Minnesota. He's a, he's a Baptist, uh, quite reformed. I don't think their church requires people to be rebaptized um, who are baptized as children. So I think there is some deference there. But, you know, the, you know people. People in the 16th and 17th century are drowned over this stuff. I mean, so you, this this has a long. I mean, these are this is treacherous area. Now, as far as communion goes, and how we recognize baptism and communion, you know, I th- these are just big, big issues. But I do think that there's a pastoral function to encourage people um, to take heart and to be reflective. First Corinthians 10, discerning the body. That's an important matter as we come to the table um, together. And I do think it is one of the benefits of being in a liturgical tradition where, again, who, who knows the hearts and minds of, of, of men and women? We don't. Only God does, and it's not our business to try to figure that out. But it is a gracious gift to us that in our liturgy there is built within it uh, confession and repentance and renewal on the way to the table. That, that's, that's a gift to us. Um, so I think, and I think that's the right thing to do liturgically. I, I think I completely skirted all that you were asking. About. <laughs> in six, six one, where it says, is, "If anyone is caught in a transgression," yes, sir. Does that mean to be found out, or does that mean to be in a bear trap? Right, like John. I mean, um, I, mean I would say a bear trap is a, and I guess because of the life together. Bonhoeffer's emphasis on confessing our cultness, that that most of our sins aren't known by other people, so we're not found out unless we confess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a strange thing when you read the book of Acts and the Pauline letters, how um, unprivatized people's lives really were. I mean, they're just, we, we tend to lead sort of private lives. And not to say that there weren't sort of private sinful patterns in the first century. Of course there were, but pe- people tended to be quite open. I mean, 1 Corinthians, I mean, these things are sort of out in the open. Every, everyone knows that it's going on. That's why they're forced to deal with it, the problems, because everyone knows it's going on. 
Um, I think for Paul in, in Galatians 6, one, I have to give some more thought to this, it's probably both and rather than either or. I mean, someone who gets caught in something that is a particular sinful pattern has seized hold on somebody, has laid hold on them, and they are caught in it, or they've been caught red-handed. I think both of those are, are real. I mean, I think that would transfer into our world very quickly in the realm of addictions. You know, someone's, when you think, what is addiction? Addiction is a certain kind of sin pattern that has grabbed a hold of you, and, and you just, you cannot get out. I mean, you can try to do all the Bob Newhart, stop it, you want to, right? Stop it, just stop doing that. Um, and it, 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 addictions don't work that way. And I think this is a very beautiful pastoral commendation from Paul to say, when people are caught in that, be gentle, be gracious, be long-suffering, and remember, you've got feet of clay too. You've got feet of clay too. All right. Have a great week and blessings and we'll see you see you soon.